Welcome to this episode of Dad Bond History. It's just me and Eric tonight. Uh, no Jeff or Cameron. Uh, how you doing, Eric? I'm well. And yourself? I'm doing well. Uh, got a real quick story. So our basement at our house had this old, we have an old house. It's like almost 100 years old. It had this wood floor in the basement. And fun fact, you should not have wood floors in basements because... It gets damp down there and the wood can rot. And that's exactly what happened here. So the past couple of weeks, we'd spent all this time. We'd rented a dumpster, ripped out the wood floor of her basement and to get to the foundation. And as we removed these like 50 years of flooring, um, it was like going through like the geologic record of our house. Like you could see when they just added layers of wood flooring. Um, there's like a three inch gap between the baseboard and the foundation. And we get to the foundation and it's not concrete. It's like the floor is like stone. Like they pack stone to build the foundation hmm. when they built the house. Like the walls like are all gravel. Uh, yeah. Huh. It's like the walls are all, you know, solid brick and concrete foundation, but the floor itself was stone. And me and my wife are like, what are we going to do? Oh, and it was really cool. Cool, because the kids like helped us like rip the floor out. Like we gave them hammers and glasses, and they, you know, put in the floor out. But like at first, when we were like pulling the wood. I like, well, maybe we can just seal the foundation and and just put some sort of flooring over it. And then once you saw it was like all this gravel, like it was uneven, and so we put a rug down. Yeah. <laughs> so what we did was we actually had a a guy this past week. He came in and poured concrete across the whole thing. So it on Thursday and it's been curing the past three or four days now. And, but in the meantime, since we've been ripping the floor out the past two or three weeks and now the concrete floor is going in, we've all been relegated to one bedroom. All, you know, me and my wife, our two kids and our dog, because two of the bedrooms we had were downstairs. Our fourth bedroom is our office. And mm -hmm. so we only had one bedroom for all of us. So we're very excited. You couldn't be downstairs while it's curing? No, because he said, I mean, we possibly could have, but we put our stuff in storage at a U-Haul. And so we're mm -hmm. like, well, we'll just wait until next week until we know it's cured. Um, they said, wait two days and you can start walking on it. So you can walk on it now, but um, probably in a couple more days, Monday or Tuesday, we'll go get the stuff out of storage and put it back in the basement. But um yeah, it's just been a nightmare project, but we have our basement back, which means we have half our house back because mm -hmm. we had a huge entertainment room down there. And then we have two bedrooms down there that we haven't been able to use since we've been doing this project. So, oh, do you, are the kids bedrooms in the basement? Yeah. Oh, OK. Yeah, I see now. Yep. So anyway, it'll be nice to get get our house back together. Yeah. And then we're, we're going to like over time, we'll like add like tile to the basement down there. But now we just have a nice level floor. We can take some throw rugs and put it down there and get our furniture back in. So our house is less than a year old. Yeah. So. Yeah. yeah 100 years, one year. There you go. Contrast. Big range. Like but you're doing uh, much work on your yard, right? Well, we're we're getting there. I've got it planned out, but I've got to figure out how to run the water back to the backyard mm. and then trench it. And we'll start in that process in a couple of weeks. I mean, I'm just okay. wrapping up basketball. I've got two more days practice tomorrow and, and our league championship on Tuesday, but the past two weeks have just been a Constant. slug fest of basketball. And it's been, you know, uh, Two, two games a week for the league, tournament on both weekends, refereeing on Tuesdays, three games. Um, so it's it's just been nonstop. But, but now it'll come to an end. And I always love that time. 
I always loved coaching when I was still teaching, but I also always loved the end of that respective sports season. Cause it's, it's a drain. Like it creeps up on you. Like in, in the moment you don't necessarily like realize how exhausting it is, but after a couple months of practices and games and traveling for tournaments, it's like, Oh man, you just can't wait for it to be over. Um, yeah. We, um, <clears throat> I went to this tournament, not this past weekend, not yesterday. Yesterday we had the, the, the County tournament and we, had two games and we lost our second we're out but the weekend before i we traveled up to the bay area so we left on monday morning at like six or friday morning at Mm -hmm. six played two games on friday played two games on saturday earned our way into a sunday spot we played it like one on sunday and then we have a four and a half hour drive so we don't leave the bay area until about 2 2 30 and we're stopping for a meal so i i wasn't getting home until seven, seven thirty, And then I turn around and, you know, it's, it's a weekend away, but I'm still with students. I'm still with the team. I'm basically on the whole time. I get home, I get a few hours with my family. Next day I'm back at it. We've got a game the next day, refing Tuesday, Wednesday's off, Thursday's a game. And it's just, you know, when you have a weekend that gets completely used, it's, it's like, well, you know, now your, your week goes from five days to like 13 straight. Yeah. It's funny. Cause, and I got a question for you. And so we're going to talk about the war in Ukraine. That's going to be our main subject for tonight. And, and we're going to kind of get into that history and, and what's going on over there. But before we do, I, I do have a question with you for sports because my daughter has been doing Taekwondo for a couple months now. And that's her first, like, you know, extracurricular activity where she's, you know, it's something outside of school that she's doing and it's a sport. It is a sport, but that's not really why we're doing it. Um, more for, you know, self-confidence and fitness and obviously protecting herself, um, and, and that sort of thing. But I'm just thinking about it. Like, so she goes two days a week. So her classes are two days a week, um, Wednesdays and Fridays, and that's it. And the more you talk about, and just not just you, but like everywhere I go and I see like youth sports in particular, just seems to dominate kids' lives from a time and energy standpoint. Like they go to school, obviously Monday through Friday, but then so often they're, they're just constantly after school, they're doing practice, they have games or tournaments. And I'm just curious if like we meet, like we need to, as a society, maybe just take it, take it down a notch when it comes to our involvement in certain youth sports and not, and and high school is different because now you're playing at a much more competitive level and you're playing like, you know, possibly for a college scholarship or, or whatever it is. But like, we got these kids that are in fifth grade or below and like, they're constantly playing sports like and i love sports i just don't know if i want my kid doing it all the time you know it is interesting because i think when we were growing up and even early on in our teaching career Mm -hmm. kids played sports for the school if they wanted to play sports and if they didn't they didn't and that was generally like you know there, there were some sports that we took seriously right like we we promoted compet, uh, you know, competition. We wanted them to perform at a high level. We wanted them to win. Um, we yeah. did things to help them to win, but that wasn't the, that may have been your day-to-day goal, but that wasn't the objective of why you were doing it. And I think even before our time, probably our parents were probably in a similar position in that you played sports for the school, but it's, it's gone. It keeps going lower and lower in level. Mm-hmm. many kids i mean you still get like little league and all that stuff and the, those generally are doing the right thing but um but little league was always different because i did little league a couple times when i was a kid you know like mm-hmm. first and second grade but that was always a summer sport it never interfered with my school it was something yeah. i did to not annoy my parents during the summer um 
but I didn't play outside of that. I didn't play any organized sports until middle school. And then that was football because below sixth grade, at least where I went to school, they didn't have school sports. Like they just didn't have any team sports like that. You know, you obviously had gym time, but they didn't have organized team sports until middle school. And then obviously high school. And like, so you're saying it, it keeps going down in level. So now yeah, it keeps going down a level. It's also expanding. Right. So now you have clubs and we can talk about how clubs are. Um, but I also think, you know, the objective, like it's to keep the kids busy. Is that, is that the objective? And maybe, yeah. I mean, if you're living in a city, if you're living in an urban environment, it makes sense to have something organized for them because, the alternative is you have a kid who what is just watching TV or sure on their phone. I mean, I yeah, mean, or if their parents work late, you know, and then go do their sport until their mom or dad is off work yeah. and then they can go home. I, I, I we're, totally we're living in that. Yeah. We're living in a different society than we were in the eighties and nineties. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure that's contributing to it. And I think it's just a response to, there's a need or there's a desire for kids to be doing these sports. So we'll provide it. No, I understand that. And I think, like I said, I love sports, but then I also see these like football academies popping up or basketball academies that pop up and, and their express purpose is to dominate in basketball. So they can get their kids, you know, recruited. We had our daughter, uh, she played AYSO for yeah. a season. And then after that, a couple of years later, somebody invited us uh, to play club. So hey, we'll play club. Well, it was like a hundred bucks a month. We did this for like seven or eight months and it was fine, but it was like, is this what we want to do? Do I want to be going every weekend to a soccer game across town or out of town? And my daughter enjoys it. She's having fun. She's having fun hanging out with these girls. She's not really becoming a soccer player. Mm-hmm. Like, I think we get more out of just doing the AYSO for three months where you practice once a week and you got your game and you have fun and you learn the game that way. Yeah. And you learn that it's fun. Which is what sports should be. Yeah. They should be fun first. Like, that's... If if sports are isn't fun for the family, and obviously for the kid especially, then I think you're missing the point, especially in an elementary school level. Like fun should be the main goal. You know, teamwork, obviously, skills, great. But if the kid isn't having fun, why are you doing it? Yeah. So. Anyway. Yeah, and I think my son, we might go the route of something like Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Mm-hmm. Something individual, my my oldest son. I don't know about the youngest yet. We'll see. Well, and, and like I said, you know, I did Taekwondo from second grade until eighth grade. And I loved it. And it was, I truly enjoyed it. It was great. And I made friends and I did it after school. And I, you, you know, I did some bullies turn- in the alleyway. And oh yeah. I would just go look for bullies. And then they <laughs> said, I'm the bully. I'm like, no, 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 no. It's self-defense for me. But, it, you know, and, and I like that my daughter is, doing that and so you know and she's having these groups of friends outside of school so she's got this extracurricular activity she's doing it together and it's really great for her and uh but then you know that too can become obsessive where people like want to go to tournaments constantly and it's like that's not why i'm doing it i mean if, if that's something she wants to pursue the more she does it great but i don't want to i don't want to be that dad that pushes like you need to, you need to do all this stuff mm. because I, I don't know why <laughs> I don't know what the, the end game is there, but yeah. Anyway. All right. So let's get into our topic tonight. So uh, we're going to, the, the, we're going to talk about the Ukraine war um, between Russia and their invasion of Ukraine. And um I mean, you can't really go anywhere the past three weeks where it's not dominating the world's attention because this is the first 
conflict in Europe since 1945 on this scale. Um, there have been other conflicts, you know, in Yugoslavia in the 90s and and stuff like that, but nothing like where two major countries are doing full mobilization and nothing battle. with a with a nuclear power. Yeah, maybe that's right. the way to put it. That that might be it, or a country that we consider a superpower, or mm-hmm. I mean. Do we do we make the comparison between this and the United States invasion of Afghanistan or Iraq? I think you can make comparisons, but they're definitely not parallel in that regard. The United States invasion of of Iraq in 2003, Iraq was they still hadn't recovered from the first Gulf War. Um, And Afghanistan was a large landmass, but it was a landmass of tribes and not a unified nation state like Ukraine is. Um, but you can make those comparisons. I just don't think there's any parallel. I mean, this is the largest conflict in Europe since World War II, absolutely. And, you know, a big part of the end of World War II was the development of NATO and obviously the UN and this idea that America would ensure European security and European trade and removed the need for powers like Germany and France and Austria and England to fight each other over resources. And so from a, you know, a European and quote unquote Western worldview, this is something we haven't seen in 80 years. Now, you could say, well, other parts of the world are constantly at war, and that's totally true. But to go from 80 years of relative peace on a continent to a conflict like this is jarring, I think, to the world psyche. And uh, and it bears discussing because of that. Um, so before we get into the conflict itself, I think it's worth going over a brief history of Ukraine and um, trying to understand why this is so important to Russia and and why Ukraine values their sovereignty so much. Because I think from an initial view, if you look at Ukraine and you go, well, you know, they were part of the Soviet Union until 1991 or 92. And before that, they were part of the Russian Empire. So you think, well, yeah, they're always part of Russia. And that's the way it is. But that's not really true. Ukraine was originally the the earliest I found that it was referred to as the the landmass that we know of as Ukraine as Ukraine was in 1187, and uh, the Kiev or Kiev was founded possibly in 482 A.D. And there's possibility that um, before Kiev was founded, that the people in in the area around Kiev traded with the Roman and Byzantine Empire in the second through fourth centuries. And all of this predates Moscow by hundreds of years, uh, Kiev and, and Ukraine. And then hey, Kiev after, was the, the center of power. Exactly. For yeah. That kingdom that kind of ruled what we would later call Russia. Yeah. It was centered in Kiev. Exactly. And, and what they, they were known as were the Kievan or Kievian Rus, uh, which was a loose confederation of Slavic people. Uh, in 879, they were first united under a Prince Oleg, and then they grew in power. And by the 11th century, by 1132, so I guess the 12th century, their kingdom was the largest in Europe. It stretched from the Black Sea in the south to the White Sea in the north. It encompassed parts of Poland, Finland, Latvia, Lithuania, uh, Slovakia, obviously Ukraine, Russia. It, it was a massive, massive nation. And they were very powerful and culturally dominant in Eastern Europe. That sort of ended, well, not sort of, it absolutely ended uh, when the Golden Horde rolled in in 1240 and destroyed Kiev and Rus and um, made it part of, of uh, Badu Khan's um, Khanate. And then sometime after that, you know, they got some brief independence after the Mongols kind of withdrew 1253 to 1340. They formed a new kingdom, the kingdom of Rutharia. In 1363, they fell under the control of the Grand Duchy of Lithuania. In 1569, they fell under the kingdom 
control of the kingdom of Poland, actually, until from so from 1569 to 1648, they were under the kingdom of Poland. And from 1648, that's when the Cossack uprisings in Ukraine started. And so then they formed a Cossack hetmanate um, in 1648. And that lasted until 1764. And it really wasn't until the 1700s that Russia was able to start under Peter the Great and then Catherine the Great exerting their influence over Ukraine and in enveloping them into the Russian hegemon and the Russian empire. Uh, and that kind of ended or reached its fruition in 1783 when Catherine the Great annexed Crimea, the Crimean Peninsula, which has been the focal point of this in this current conflict. Um, all that to say is that like, Ukraine and Kyiv and the people there have this history separate from Russia that goes back centuries that I think we as Westerners or we as Americans don't fully appreciate. Well, it's separate, but it's <clears throat> it's very closely tied. It is. Yeah, I mean, these are all Slavic peoples. Under the same banner. Mm-hmm. Or they've been under a, a same banner at the same time, even though those banners have been different, right? They've been on the Cuban Rus, they've been under Lithuania, they've been under the Mongol Horde. They've been under several banners together, mm-hmm. <clears throat> including the and, Russian and, Empire. And the Ottomans had parts of Ukraine. I mean, yeah. it was, yeah. But, in, you know, and then after the 1700s, they were fully part of the Russian Empire from then until World War One. Mm-hmm. when the Russian empire collapsed. And so it's just interesting though, because when I was watching kind of this lead up to the war on, on one hand, you see Putin saying he doesn't, you know, and if you've read some other interviews from Putin, like his discussions with president uh, George W. Bush and Obama, he has this opinion that Ukraine is, it's never been its own country it's never it's never truly been separate from the russian sphere of influence in his mind and from you know 1700s until world war 1 and then through the cold war that's accurate but ukraine has this identity separate from moscow and this this ancient identity that is separate from moscow and yes there have been times where they've been under different authorities like Poland and Lithuania and and obviously Russia, but they've never stopped being Ukrainian. And I think that's what's so interesting here is that Putin is trying to paint this as Russia's just claiming lost territory that was always theirs to begin with. And Ukraine is saying, no, we're always, we've always been Ukrainian. We're, you know, we may be cousins, you know, with Russians and, and other Slavic peoples, but we are not yours we are not the same as yours and i think it's just a fascinating look at a historical kind of review of where this conflict has come from yeah as much as you know the russian empire and even the soviet union would have although the soviet union set it up as its own soviet republic right like it was ukrainian Mm -hmm. Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, that's when that border was most recently drawn was during under the Soviet Union. Before that, it was part of the Russian Empire. There was no border there. Well, and they were called Novo Rosia, New Russia, under after Catherine the Great. So she russified. She tried to russify Ukraine as part of her conquest. Yeah. And so that russification had been going on. Well, even as late as um, like Tsar Nicholas trying to russify certain parts of the country that weren't quite all the way there yet. And when you have a country as large as Russia stretching all the way to the Sea of Okhotsk and uh, the Kamchatka Peninsula Mm -hmm. in the east, I mean, how do you make everyone Russian, especially so at the end of the, the 19th century? You know, nationalism is becoming this power in Europe and in other parts of the world, you know, in Germany and Italy and France, everyone's trying to create their own identities. And so in Russia, the 
the impetus is to create a Russian identity. Well, there's a lot of places that don't consider themselves Russian. And when you have such a vast stretch of land to make them all feel Russian is a difficult task. And also by doing that, you create resistance. You know, there's an automatic feedback of resistance to, we want you to change something. Well, no, we're going to hold on to that tighter. Um, and so you want to talk about some history of Ukraine. Well, there's also this history of Russia. Mm -hmm. And we can go back to just about a year ago, we did our series on the Russo-Japanese War and how there was you might say this hubris of we are an empire and we are powerful and we are European that we can just go claim empire wherever we want. Mm -hmm. And we're not going to find anybody that can stop us outside of Europe and the Russians, while not instigating the Russo-Japanese war, at least not firing the first shots, um, had a hand in making it start. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And, and we're almost certainly the aggressors in that war um, at least from their attitude, failed miserably. Mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, the other parallel I wanted to make or thought we could make is the parallel, not just to the Russo-Japanese War, but to, you know, all the wars of aggression over the past 150 years. How many of them have been successful? Like, how often does it actually work? When the instigator of the conflict ends up winning yeah like how uh, often does a war of aggression like succeed it would be 1870 franco-prussian war i yeah i mean would that be the, <laughs> that but, be the but last was that <laughs> is that really like it's not like he was uniting they're all German speakers. It's not like he was conquering another people. They were all. No, but I'm saying when he German, fought yeah. France, that not, not just the unification of Germany, but the, the taking of Alsace-Lorraine from France. Okay. So they, they but, took a piece of land, but they didn't conquer France. They won that war, but, and they took mm -hmm. a sliver of land, an important one, but you know, but yeah, they didn't, they didn't, they didn't, you know, Germanify France. They didn't conquer no. it, try to make it Germany, an extension of Germany. No, I see what you're saying. But imagine um, being born in the 1860s in Alsace-Lorraine and you're French and then you're German and then you're French. And, and if you live German, long enough, yeah. You're, and then you're French. <laughs> um, but I'm trying to think, you know, these wars of aggression, how often are they successful? Mm -hmm. And so if you look at the Russo-Japanese war. Well, no, you, you could know, say Japan... I mean, because they did start the war. They did fire the first shot, although there's a very strong case to be made. They did it out of their own self-defense. They were the aggressor mm -hmm. um, in that conflict, but also Russia was being very aggressive in their claims in Manchuria and um, in Korea as well. So uh, both were kind of aggressive, although I think Russia was being very overconfident and assumptive in their aggression, whereas mm -hmm. Japan looked at it from a survival instinct as opposed to a just yeah. empire building. I guess that that's going to be a very general question, you know, mm -hmm. war of aggression, because I mean, that's what war is. It's very aggressive, mm -hmm. but even, you know, the U S invasion of Iraq, if you go ahead and claim that's a war of aggression, was it successful? The Soviet well, invasion of Afghanistan was it successful? I mean, that's a good question. What your objective because, is, but you know, well, the objective in the U.S. invasion of Iraq was to replace the regime with a more pro-American, pro-Western regime and find weapons of mass destruction. Now, they didn't really find those weapons of mass destruction, um, but they definitely did conquer Iraq and replace it with a government. And you can debate the success of that nation building. Um, same thing with Afghanistan. The original goal was to destroy the Taliban and hunt bin Laden and they got him and they did destroy the Taliban or at least force them out of Afghanistan. And then when they withdrew, they came back. So it, I guess it depends on how you define that objective. Um, although I would not call either one of those wars successful long-term from an American perspective, but it's interesting. 
to look at that question, because when you talk about this Russian identity with Ukraine, a big part of, of that, especially in the 20th century, was World War One and World War Two, because Ukraine had men fight for Russia in both those conflicts. Although Ukraine also had men fight usually for the enemy of Russia in that conflict too. So in World War One, 3.5 million Ukrainians fought for the Russian Empire. 250,000 Ukrainians fought for Austria-Hungary because they wanted to, they wanted to break away from the Russian Empire. Yeah. Uh, in World War II, uh, possibly up to seven million Ukrainians fought for the USSR in World War II. Now, part of that is because Hitler invaded Ukraine. Yeah. As part of his move towards Moscow, because he needed the. Well, it would have been his move towards. Uh, or Stalingrad. Lenin, uh, Stalingrad. Yeah. Because that's just on the other side, right? Like, well, and the resources of Ukraine were something that Hitler needed. Yeah. So, but up to 7 million Ukrainians fought for the USSR. 6 million Ukrainians possibly died in that war. 1.4 million, which were soldiers, Ukrainian soldiers. Another, so that means another four and a half million died were just civilians. Mm-hmm. Um, so massive. So Ukraine was a massive player in Russia's success in World War II. And even though Russia lost World War I, Ukraine played a massive role in fighting for the Russian Empire. Now, I don't know how many of them did it because they had to, because they were conscripted, and how many mm-hmm. did it out of patriotic fervor. I, I don't really know the answer to that, but Ukraine had a very vested interest in the two world wars on the behalf of Russia and the Soviet Union. But what's interesting is- well, but I mean, so if you if you look at them, you say Ukrainians fought for Russia or fought for the Soviet Union, they were within the territory, right? So they were fighting for their- Land. Ruling power mm-hmm. in both cases. So it's not, it, A, it can be lost in- in kind of the fog of war that these were Ukrainians, not Russians. Yeah. Right. And so, cause all well, the statistics. And, and, and in world war two as well, I don't know how many it was. There was Ukrainians that fought for Nazi Germany mm-hmm. as well, because they didn't want, you know, they wanted their independence yeah. from Russia. So it, it's not like, you know, it's never been like this unified idea of Ukraine is like, yep, we love Russia. Like there's always been that nationalist identity and those that, but that when movement. You, when you look at statistics from those wars, it often doesn't list them as Ukrainians. They are listed as Russians mm-hmm. or Soviets, right? Like, yeah. So they're they're lumped in with, you know, whoever was ruling them at the time, uh, and that's going to cloud the collective memory of everyone in terms of what Ukraine is and who these people are and who, who they say they are, right? Mm-hmm. We're talking about self-determination. So who do you say that you are uh, in a nation, especially in Europe, when you, when you do have pretty close ethnic ties to your, your past, mm-hmm. that that's going to matter. And if history books are going to paint it as, well, these are Russians or Soviets, then, that makes it harder, especially for Americans to understand, well, this is kind of a new country. Maybe it is just Russia. Mm -hmm. It's a new country, but it's also an ancient distinct people. Like you said, but that's what I mean. Like to those in America, I would say in general, that don't necessarily pay attention to the goings on of Eastern Europe. I think we've fallen into that trap. It's like, well, they used to be part of Russia and, you know, yeah, they got their freedom, but they're not really their own country. Um, but they've always had this history of trying to have that self-determination. I mean, that's what the Cossacks were doing is they were trying to break free of outside influence. Um, and then obviously before that, they were there in their own right. They were a vast kingdom and empire um, when they were the Kiev and Rus. And then what's interesting, though, is, is uh, although Putin might think or maybe he has this perception that, well, they've always been Russia's and they're not their own people. 
And if they've always been Russians, you think you would treat them better because in the 30s, there is the Holodomor, which is the Great Famine, 1932 mm-hmm. to 1933, where Stalin starved Ukrainians to death. He would make the farmers try to reach these quotas of wheat and grain to feed, you know, the Soviet republics. Well, let's 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 back up a little bit further. It wasn't it wasn't. Um, it, it started a little bit earlier because they went after the kulaks, which were these. Not wealthy, but they were well-to-do farmers in Ukraine, and they were making they collectivized more money. them, right? Well, first they took the kulaks and they sent them off to Siberia because they were the they were you know they were capitalists. They were making money off of of producing food, and they were wealthier than the people around them. They weren't they weren't like land barons and oil barons. They were just farmers who were doing well because they had this figured out. So they take the kulaks and their families, they ship them off, they end up dying in Siberia, they bring in mm-hmm. new people to run the, the farms, and they're not farmers. So they don't produce enough. They don't produce as much as the kulaks had. And then, well, then you end up having quotas and, you know, centralization of something like food production tends to not be perfect and mm-hmm. things get wasted, bureaucracy slow things down. and then you end up with this massive famine. Yeah, and millions died. Yeah. Most of those millions were Ukrainians. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing is like, you know, Russia had this, Stalin had this, this objective and it basically to get what he wanted, he would starve a country to death. And that's exactly what happened. And so, yes, they were part of Russia since the 1700s, but like they were always treated as, Second expendable. Class. Yeah, they're second class. They're expendable to those to the Muscovites, to those that lived in Moscow and 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 you know the, so the, the czar's purview. I said I don't know if you saw that link that I sent in the chat to you. Um there's a map that I always show my students when we study World War One, and it's a map of Austria-Hungary in 1910, and it's specifically an ethnic map. Because mm-hmm. Austria-Hungary was this massive empire in the middle of Europe. Mm-hmm. But the number of very distinct ethnic groups within that empire might help people understand how just because there's borders and just because it's called something doesn't mean the people there adhere to any sense of the, their rulers. Right. Mm-hmm. So you have it, it's not, it's not, <clears throat> it's not simply like these different areas these are different languages in some cases different religions you have bosnians you have croatia croatians slovenians dalmatians carnelians um in this you actually have ukrainians at this point living in austria hungary mm-hmm. which is you know if you were conscripted during the war as a ukrainian to go fight the russians who are conscripting ukrainians you're likely fighting other ukrainians in during world war one mm-hmm. there's italians here there's germans you've got your czechs slovaks hungarians right and it's just this wild but but it's not like everyone has their area right so if you're if you're romanian you live amongst romanians but your ruler is an austrian mm-hmm. and if they go to war you're conscripted into the austrian army and you have no sense of fighting for Romania. Yeah. Right. And so after the war, the idea of self-determination, one of Woodrow Wilson's 14 points is that these countries should have a say, these people should have a say in who rules over them. And so a lot of these pick it up and say, well, we're going to be Romanians now. Mm-hmm. We, right. So that empire is broken up. <clears throat> exactly. And so in, in you know, 1991, in 92, the, the Soviet Republic falls apart and the Ukrainians are now able to have their own country. It's recognized by the Soviet Union or now the Russian Federation. And in 1994, and this is key to what's happening today, is the Budapest Memorandum. And this is when Ukraine, because at the time of the disillusion of the Soviet Union, 
Ukraine was now the third largest nuclear power behind the United States and Russia. They had 5,000 nuclear arms that were left in Ukraine from the fall of the Soviet Union. And the Budapest Memorandum in 1994, Ukraine gave up those arms. Just they, they denuclearized um, with the idea that the United States, the United Kingdom and Russia would guarantee their security. Now, it wasn't legally binding in like a treaty, like a treaty would be between the United States. It wasn't something that was approved by the Senate, you know, mm-hmm. but it was an understanding that the United States, the, the UK and Russia would guarantee their security because they're giving up their nuclear arsenal. Um, so none of those nations would use force of threats against Ukraine if aggression took place. The signatories would go to the the UN immediately to aid Ukraine. It was not legally binding, um, but it was believed that the United States and the UK would take their commitments seriously. Well, in 2014, uh, in February of 2014, um, there was something called the Revolution of Dignity, in which they ousted Ukraine, ousted the president, Viktor Yanukovych, who's pro-Russian. He now lives in Russia in exile from Ukraine. And then they elected uh, Peter Poroshenko, Petro Poroshenko in May of 2014. Between February and May 2014, that's when Russia annexed Crimea. And then pro-Russian rebels seized government buildings in the Donetsk and Luhansk regions in eastern Ukraine, the separatist regions of, of Ukraine. And so Russia clearly violated their commitments of the Budapest Memorandum in 1994 by invading and annexing Korea, uh, Crimea, although they pretended that that wasn't them, the whole little green men thing. Mm-hmm. Um, they pretended that wasn't them, but it clearly was. And then they supported Russian-backed separatists in those two regions. And the United States and the United Kingdom didn't do a whole lot in the years after that. They said, oh, well, that's bad. You shouldn't do that, Russia. And, um, you know, and then so then Ukraine elected Petro Poroshenko, who is more pro-Western. He was more pro-European, um, started to entertain the idea of NATO and the EU um, and so they moved westward as a result of those actions in 2014. Um, it was also during this time in 2014 that the Malaysian Airlines plane was shot down um, during the the uh, fighting in the oh. the Netsk region, um, and it was shot down by a, a Russian missile. So the I forgot what the flight number was, but that's when that happened. It was in July of that year. And then since then, from 2014 to 2012 or 22, the Donbass War, so that war between the separatists in those two regions in Ukraine, uh, 14,000 people have been killed as a result of that, just that fighting in those two regions. It also tied Ukraine to the Russian sphere of influence. Um, So Ukraine couldn't join NATO because they were having a civil war basically they had to put down before they could join nato um and it it just tied them to russia and then throughout much of 2020 and 2021 russia would build troops up along the ukrainian border and then they'd remove them and then they'd build them back up and do all these maneuvers near ukraine to kind of get attention or let you know ukraine know that hey we're right here we're right here don't don't you keep going westward. Um, and in, in 2019 is when they uh, elected Volodymyr Zelensky. And uh, he was obviously even more westward leaning than Poroshenko was. So that that continued lurch to the West and to Europe continued to happen during those, those years between 2014 and 2022. Obviously, past three weeks, 2022, um, Putin, on February 21st, he announced Russia would officially recognize the Donetsk and Luhansk regions as separate republics. He deployed Russian troops as, quote unquote, peacekeepers to those regions. And then on February 24th, the Russian invasion of Ukraine began and they invaded Ukraine from Belarus in the north. They invaded from the east and they invaded from the south in Crimea. And that brings us up to today. 
Um, but looking at it that way, you can kind of see this, this fraught history between the people of Ukraine and Russia. And it's never been as simple to say as, well, they're just Russians. They're just like everyone else from Russia because they're clearly not. And they clearly have their own identity and they've been an independent nation. Even if you could say that they were just Russians before the 90s, they've been an independent nation for 30 years now. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's a generation of people that have had self-determination and been able to well, make their decisions. So when you, you can say, well, there's self-determination. Do the people from Luhansk and Donetsk have self-determination? If they claim to be Russian as a mm-hmm. majority, do they have the right to self-determine? And that's tricky because, well, you can't, can't, I mean, can everyone just secede and keep seceding? Because I, and I don't want to, I, I was reading it a few minutes ago that there was a portion of Donetsk, maybe it was Luhansk, um, that, that, you know, claimed independence. And then there was much like when Virginia seceded, West Virginia seceded from Virginia. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a group that declared independence from that Republic back to Ukraine. Yeah. Um, but I, I can't, I can't find well, it. Well, but it's interesting though, is because I, another parallel is looking at some of what Putin did, especially with those two regions, very reminiscent of Hitler's moves in the Sudetenland where he kind of built up this narrative of like, well, that really should be Germany because there's a bunch of German speaking people mm-hmm. in this region. And so that, that shouldn't be Czechoslovakia that should be Germany. The Sudetenland should be ours. And then he used that as a way to just take all of Czechoslovakia. Yeah. Um, and so it kind of reminded me of that, but also understanding that if Ukraine has self-determination do the people, the Russian speaking people there, do they have to be part of Ukraine or, you know, can they form their own country or their own Republic or can they desire to go back to Russia? Um, and that's a great question. I don't know the answers to that, but I also think Putin, Putin is using this as pretty flimsy cover yeah. for a full scale invasion. You know, it wouldn't be the first time. Very large country. And, and I don't, you know, the comparisons to Nazi Germany are going to be, Many, because there's a lot of similarities, but it's also let's, you know, we're not I'm not trying to say the same thing. Putin is Hitler, but I am saying the similarities between the Donetsk and Luhansk regions and Hitler's claims for the Sudan yeah. land striked me as very I mean, similar. I know some people here in the in the United States have no problem calling certain politicians literally Hitler. But no, we're not making that comparison. Mm-hmm. But, it, you know, on the eve of the invasion of Poland. Hitler and Germany claimed that they were going to invade because Poland had launched an invasion on them. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, I think a better comparison would be when Italy invaded Abyssinia, which is now Ethiopia uh, in the 19 early 1930s. Um, you know, Benito Mussolini, they launched the assault from Eritrea and Somalia, which they had as colonies into Ethiopia. And the result was the League of Nations laid sanctions on Italy and they didn't have much effect by the end of it. Italy had claimed Ethiopia annexed it as part of their empire. Mm -hmm. And because they had alienated everyone, including France, Italy had developed the possibility of an alliance with France to counter Germany. Um, Well, Italy invaded Ethiopia and got alienated by everybody except for one person who said, you know what, we feel your pain, you want to be friends, we'll stand by you. And that was Germany. Mm-hmm. So the, the parallel here being everybody is alienating Russia and Putin mm-hmm. especially. And the only people that are standing beside him and, and not maybe taking a stand against him is China. And that's kind of a dangerous alliance to have in place to be strengthening through this whole thing. Mm-hmm. It is dangerous, but it's also, I think, necessary in the sense that I and I don't want United States 
soldiers fighting in Ukraine. I don't, but um, I do think these response from the United States and Europe specifically has been appropriate to sanction Russia into oblivion. And it's pretty remarkable how, because we've heard the word sanctions forever that right anytime a a bad actor in the world does something we don't like well we'll sanction them and they continue to do the bad thing that we don't like because they're they're able to get around the sanctions this is different what the united states and and what europe is really leading the charge on with the world is they're fighting russia without firing a shot right now Ukraine is paying for this in blood, sweat, and tears, and they're paying for it in, in treasure and people. But the United States and, the, and Europe and, and all these other countries are making Russia hurt by cutting them off from the world banking system. All these massive companies like Apple and UPS and FedEx and McDonald's are pulling out. Um, all the big oil companies have said, we don't want to deal with Russian oil because it's not worth it to us. And that's outside of just the sanctions. That's just companies saying we're we're done. We're not going to we're not going to deal with you guys anymore. And as a result, the ruble has fallen. I mean, this is a week ago, so maybe it's fallen more. It fell by fifty percent in a couple of weeks. Uh, the Russian interest rate jumped up to twenty percent as a way to combat inflation in Russia. The markets in Russia have been closed since this war started um, to prevent. Yeah. A run on all their stocks. Like, They've been closed for like 18 days. Yeah. That's that's amazing because, well, how do you, not having your stock market open, I mean, we've closed ours after 9-11. We've, we've shut ours down for like a half day once in a while. We're like, let everyone cool off. Mm-hmm. I cannot imagine this, the, the United States, the New York Stock Exchange being closed for longer than a week. Russia's Russian can't Russians can't access U.S. dollars, which is the world's reserve currency. So if they want to leave the country, they can't because they don't have any money to do so. Um, the basically the entirety of Europe and North America, and I'm sure vast parts of Asia and Africa, have closed their airspace to Russian planes. So their ability to travel is severely restricted. It's just amazing in a matter of three weeks how much changed for Russia as a result of Putin's invasion of Ukraine. And again, I, I don't know if I want Americans fighting in this war. And it may come to the point where we have to. And yeah. if that's the case, then that's the case. Um, but it's remarkable because it's never been an instance in my life where the United States and the UN and the EU and all these big global people and groups of nations have acted in such a way to punish a bad actor. Yeah. And it, that it's just, I don't know if it's changing geopolitics as we think about it. So here's something I I was looking into because I was curious because it's another parallel that this could have. And that is um, in some respects to the Spanish America, or sorry, the Spanish civil war. Um, you know, a, basically a conventional war that was had a bunch of people involved in it. But right now there is the um, an international legion of territorial defense of Ukraine, which is the Ukrainian foreign legion. And, um, you know, it's similar to the international brigades of the Spanish Civil War. Um, they're foreign volunteers. And I was looking through this. Um, they have a strength right now of more than 20,000 international volunteers in Ukraine right now fighting. And I was looking through the different lists of countries, um, such as the United States. And it says, um, you know, there's a travel advisory. All Americans should not travel to Ukraine. Also, the Neutrality Act of 1794 It remains in effect as of March 2022, prohibits U.S. citizens from taking up arms against any country at peace with the United States. It is unclear whether the United States Congress will pass legislation to waive this restriction with respect to the the conflict in Ukraine. 
On March 3rd, the Ukrainian embassy announced 3,000 U.S. citizens had signed up to volunteer by 10th, by March 10th, announced 6,000. Um, only 100 have been approved to join. Um, contrast this with Germany. They said that they declared the federal government would not prevent its own citizens from going to Ukraine to fight in the war. These persons also would not face criminal prosecution. And then it says this applies to potential missions for both Ukrainians and Russians. So it reminds me of uh, the office when uh, Ryan Howard stands up and he says a toast to the troops, all the troops on both sides and everyone groans. <laughs> um, yeah. but they're also not going to let right wing extremists travel to Ukraine from Germany because they they label. You know, that's criminal to be in Germany and some of those extremist groups. Sorry about that. You, no, you're good. I made it to go in a couple minutes here. That's fine. Um, but I think that's fascinating that now there are volunteers from around the world, which was a curiosity of mine, right? Because in World War II, we had the Eagle Squadrons mm -hmm. of American Air Force pilots who were decommissioned in the U.S. Air Force to go be pilots with the Royal Air Force. Yeah. And it's interesting, too, is that I think I saw a stat uh, as of a couple of days ago, some 200,000 Ukrainians have repatriated, most of them young men to go fight as volunteers or if not fight, um, provide aid or medical treatment, whatever it is. And a lot of these even these foreign legionnaires, I don't know how you refer to them, are, some of them are doctors, um, some of them are just people that want to help any way they can. They're not all combatants. Um, and so the response from even though these nations, rightly so, don't want to involve escalating things with Russia militarily, are also saying, well, the United States or Germany or France aren't going to declare war on Russia. Um, if you want to go volunteer, go volunteer. And I think that's a pretty remarkable thing that I, I just don't know. I don't know if I went into this conflict with any expectations, um, but, but it's definitely something I did not seek happening is this sort of worldwide solidarity for Ukraine to exist. And um, it's really heartening uh, to see. So um, here's one other volunteer. This is from Canada. Um, they have a Canadian Ukrainian brigade um, recruit at least 600 people. And the Canada is home to the second largest population of the Ukrainian diaspora. And a famous former Royal 22nd Regiment sniper named Wally from Montreal arrived in Ukraine. He's been called the deadliest sniper in the world after he reportedly eliminated for, eliminated 40 people a day as a sniper in Syria, Afghanistan, and Iraq. Okay, well that's bonkers. I thought it was that <laughs> I thought it was that guy from like Finland, but yeah. Um, but uh okay. Um and so real quick before um we kind of wrap this up, the status of this war and it's, it's I mean, you can find these numbers pretty much anywhere, but, but, or what's happening pretty much anywhere is that Russia has done just about as poor as a nation could do in this invasion, especially for how fearful we all think of Russia as. I mean, they have a very large army, um, well over a million people in their army, 200,000 of them have been part of this invasion force. They have thousands of tanks, thousands of planes. They have massive numbers of artillery. They have all the things that a conventional army would need to win a war. Granted, a lot of the things they have are old Soviet relics. Ukraine um, has John Deere. Ukraine has farmers with tractors, and that seems to be decisive at this point. What's interesting, though, and here's another parallel between the Russo-Japanese War and this one. Many of the Russians fighting in this war are poorly trained. Most of them are conscripts. Um, they're pulled from a lot of their eastern 
region. So they're not the people from Moscow. Um, they're poorly equipped. Uh, the logistics are just atrocious. The command structure is very top heavy, whereas um, the American command structure is very bottom up. And even if an officer goes down, everybody in that fighting unit knows what the object objective is and knows how to carry that out. Um, that's not the case with the Russians. And so it's very centralized, very top heavy, and it's, it's not working well for them. In addition, Ukraine has had eight years fighting the, in the Donetsk and Luhansk regions. Their army is about 200,000 people total, but then they have lots of reservists and um, they have some special units as well. And they're Western supplied with anti-tank missile launchers, those javelins. And they're just far more competent and they're very decentralized and they know the territory because it's their land. And so you've got these like two competing philosophies. One, this old Russian idea of, well, we're bigger, so we're just going to overwhelm you. And now you've got the Ukrainians who are far more competent, far more trained, far more, although they don't have the big heavy armor, they're very well supplied and their logistics are much, much better. And they're making the Russians hurt. Some of the casualty estimates and casualty means, you know, killed and wounded, um, or in this case, captured as well. Russian casualties are up to possibly 12,000 people. Yeah. And, now, and for comparison, Ukraine is fighting on defensively, right? They have yeah. the defensive advantage. But for comparison, and, and so they say about 12,000 total casualties that includes wounded, maybe four to 6,000 killed Russians. Um, for comparison's sake, the United States was in Afghanistan for 20 years and had 4,000 killed. Russia's lost that in three weeks. That is not a sustainable rate of attrition for Russia. Now, you might say it's not a sustainable rate for the Ukrainians. It looks like about 2,800 Ukrainian soldiers have been killed. Hundreds or thousands of civilians have been killed as well. Um, and that's, you know, cities are being just leveled by Russian artillery. But in a war of attrition right now. Russian tank Russian, columns are being leveled by artillery as well. Yeah, Russian right? tank columns are just sitting on roads, getting torn apart by uh, drones, by um, infantry with javelin missile launchers. Like, it's not a good outcome for the Russian army. And it's a lot of these Russians, I don't have really any sympathy for Putin or the people that are promoting this war from Moscow or these commanders that are sending these young men to die. But I do have some sympathy for a lot of these Russian soldiers because they're kids yeah. and they're being sent. And a lot of them had no idea they were actually going to war. They literally thought they were just doing a training exercise. And then they found themselves in a foreign country being shot at by Ukrainians and they surrendered. Like, and they just surrendered because <laughs> they didn't know that there was an actual war going on. They were so shielded from information and the truth that they just thought they were going to walk in. Or if they did know that they were going to war, they were told by their commanders, don't worry, the Ukrainians aren't going to fight. They're going to welcome us. And obviously that did not happen. And so I don't have sympathy for Putin at all. I don't have sympathy for any of the generals in Russia, but I do have some measure of sympathy for some of these young Russian boys um, that are being killed for, for Putin's vanity. I don't know what else it could possibly be. Um, I do have a war of aggression that was fully successful. I knew you'd find one. I really find it just occurred to me. In the last war of aggression, we'll use that a little bit loosely, that I can think of that was like 100% successful. And again, you might disagree with my, you know, that's it, not how we usually call it. Some people call it that, but the war of Northern aggression. I knew you were going to say it. I'm like some daughters of the Confederacy nonsense is going to no, come out. <laughs> and not in that sense, but I mean, it was a, it was a full on offensive war. And Lincoln and the, the union like fully conquered the South. Like it didn't turn into a war of attrition. 
it didn't turn into a half effort. I mean, they full on invaded the South. They had to, and they succeeded. Yeah, though they did. They utterly destroyed the Confederacy. And, uh, you know, again, it wasn't like the Confederacy had been like a well-established thousand-year-old group of people who had kept themselves separate from Northerners. Yeah. They, they were Americans, but still, that's what that was. Yeah, now while the North or the Union didn't start the war, the South fired the first shots yeah. at Fort Sumter and did the secession, the Union definitely was the aggressor. I mean, outside of Lee. Yeah, well, they had to know. be. And that yeah. was kind of the whole thing, right? Uh, if we're going to go re reunify, we have to go take it back. And the yep. South was happy to be like, no, nah, just stay out and we're good. So they had to be the aggressor. So I guess mm -hmm. if you want, you can put that into that that list. Yeah. No, I, I, I would agree with that because outside of Lee's one campaign and then obviously the disaster at Gettysburg, the South, the Southern armies did not push into the North. They didn't have to. That wasn't their objective. Their objective was to try to defend and hold. Um, but the North had to invade and they did and successfully. So um, that's all I got. I, I got to get going here yeah. pretty quick. Well, this but, is uh, a story, a developing story. Yeah, maybe we can talk about it again. But yeah, uh, hopefully uh, I can just wrap up. It'd be nice if it did. It'd be nice if we didn't have to talk about this again. But unfortunately i think it's going to take a while and there's gonna be a lot of young men and women that are going to pay for that that time um on both sides and it's sad to see in that regard yep but, but uh barry pepper's uh character from saving private ryan has the solution so get me in this year rifle within one mile up to including one mile of adolf hitler war's <laughs> over boys are going home <laughs> there you Love go. That line. All right. Well, from Dad Bot History, I'm Jake. I'm Eric. See y'all next time. <laughs>